Are you craving some protein after a good workout? Don't make a shake this time. Do not eat a bar. Grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Wild Trapper. Because Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and tender and made from real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. Old Trapper is a family-owned business that takes smoked beef extremely seriously, and you can taste it in every single bite. Who wants dried, rough beef in a bag? Nobody. It's like eating a shoe. Old Trapper, though, is the real deal, and it comes in four amazing flavors. Old Fashioned is sweetened with a touch of brown sugar goodness. Teriyaki peppered, and hot and spicy for those of you who like to take things up a notch. Next time you want a great protein and energy snack that you can have anytime, anywhere, grab some Old Trapper beef jerky. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. That way you can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. Clones, if you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? You were not doing it for the money. Like I've always said this, whenever somebody says it's not about the money, generally it's about one thing, the money, but that's not what that was, right? You know, it's what I live and breathe. It's really what keeps me motivated. And people ask me, like, how long can you do this? I'm going to keep doing it. I may not do it in public <laughs> if my skills are waning, but I'm sure I'll be on my skateboard somehow, some way. Hey, now it's cracking. Welcome to episode 124 of the Jim Rome Podcast. Whether it is your first time or your 124th time, I'm glad you made it a point to be here. This week, my guest is skateboarding icon Tony Hawk. An icon might not even do it justice. In fact, I might just drop the word completely. Let me try it this way instead. This week, my guest is skateboarding Tony Hawk. You see what I just did there? This guy's not just the face of the sport. He is the sport. Tony Hawk took skateboarding from bootleg VHS tapes and underground jam skate sessions to the mainstream. He landed a 900 on national television. He dropped a video game series that launched skateboarding into the forefront of everybody's minds and into the driveways of everyone's parents. At 51 years of age, the Birdman is still the king of vert and still the poster boy for skating, and that's a role he has relished and thrived in for decades now. So let's go ahead and do this. Less talk, more hawk. F-124 drops into the pipe right now. Tony, it's been a moment or two since you and I have spoken, so number one, it's so great to run you down, and thank you so much for doing it. First things first, Tony, how are you and your family doing during this extremely challenging time? Uh, we're doing okay. We're very lucky to have a lot of uh, distractions and activities at our home. Um, I think the challenge, well, the, not, the fun part and challenging part is that we have three boys that were in college up until two weeks ago. And now we're back home. <laughs> and we were almost empty nesters up to that point. Um, but it's fun. It's fun spending time with them. It's fun reconnecting. And, and um, they're happy to be here and skating and whatnot. So uh, we're doing okay, but thank you. Tony, help me with that. For instance, we're going through something similar to you, but I have one in college who all of a sudden came back home. He didn't even finish his freshman year. What's it like to have three back home at the same time? I mean, if you're an empty nester, it's great to have them back, but they've been playing by their own rules since they've been away at college. What's it like now that they're back home and they're not supposed to leave? Yeah, that's that's the challenging part, is convincing them that they can't hang out with friends who, you know, their friends have all gone away to college and now they're all back in town, and so they want to reconnect with them. 
And it just, you know, we just can't have all the intermingling. So that's probably the hardest thing is like, you guys can hang out here. You can skate here. You can't have your friends over anymore. You can't just go visit them wherever they are. And, and that's the, that's the one thing that we're still trying to stick to. And, and uh, they're kind of getting sick of it. Preach exactly the same way. Help me with one more thing. So what about, what about video games? I mean, this is kind of tough, right? Because you're in the business to sell video games and have done very, very well. And look, everything's great in moderation, right? But I've got a younger one who is a freshman in high school who loves to play the card of dad. There's nothing else to do. Like this kid, so this is amazing. He literally hit me with this. The other day he was sleeping. I said, why are you sleeping? He said, quote, I'm saving my game time since I tried to ration him. What do I do with that? Wow, that one. Um, well, I, I all I could say is luckily we're kind of out of that uh, that age. Um, but I can tell you that one of my kids who who was a freshman in college, he is on the computer uh, playing games and then onto Zoom meetings at his school. And I don't know. I, I feel like he, you know, he he literally is of adult age, so I can't really stop him. But uh, it's tough. Exactly. All right, then. So you and a group of over 115 athletes from all different sports have donated items to be raffled off at the end of the month to raise money for those affected by the coronavirus. Why is donating to COVID-19 relief so important to you? And where can listeners learn more about the raffle and the item that you threw in with? Um, well, uh, it's, it's hugely important to me because it's the best way that I can give back. You know, I'm, I'm trying to provide something of value so that we can raise money for those affected. And, uh, it's, um, a lot of other athletes have done it. Uh, I can't, what is the exact URL? Um, sorry, I'm, it's, you know, uh, it is, I've got it. It's, it's pledge.org, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so basically if you donate at least $25, you enter a chance to win the raffle for my, Love it. Love it. Great stuff. Now, listen, you obviously there are people listening. There are hardcore followers of the sport that are listening to this. They know your background, but you've got a lot of folks who, of course, know of you, but don't know the entire backstory of your rise in the sport. So if you can take me back, what was your very first board and how old were you when you got on it? Uh, my first skateboard was a fiberglass board. Uh, it was called Bane. Uh, it didn't have a, a, a nose or a kicktail. It was just sort of a flat uh, board with urethane wheels. It was a hand-me-down for my brother. And it's what, it really, I just used it for transportation um, to and from school. And then at some point, I got, I got to go to a skate park, which was in San Diego, and I literally saw people flying out of swimming pools. And that was when I had my epiphany. I was like, I want to fly. I want to do what they're doing. And I kind of never looked back. I, I quit all the other sports I was in and just focused on skating and, and basically tried to get rides from my parents whenever I could to the skate park and spent all my time there out of school. I love that. Now, Tony, like any, any really good athlete, well, really good athletes would tell you now, Tony, that you don't have to choose. In fact, it's better to play multiple sports. However, I know a lot of athletes that would tell you you have to specialize and really focus and lock in on that one thing. Correct me if I'm wrong. Was, was the sport that you gave up for skateboarding not violin? Uh, well, I, so I did play basketball and baseball. <laughs> I um, know it. I know. But, but the reason I quit, and I agree with you, I, I think you should be more versatile, and I think you should try to do more than one thing. But I, I had to quit because so many of the skate events were on weekends, 
and that's when all the other games were. But I also did play violin at the time, and I was starting to get pretty good at violin, and my music teacher was the one who told me I had to choose. Um, and, I, and that is honestly one of the big regrets of my life is that I listened to him and quit altogether because I really miss playing music. Like, I thought it was cool that I was able to play music, but he said, you can't do that and also expect to do this because you, you just don't, you can't, uh, you don't have the bandwidth. I get that, but right, this is the time when you're supposed to pick up that hobby or pick up that instrument. Now is the True. time to go pick the violin back up, though, right? True. I have been I have been dabbling a little bit, and it's it's not like riding a bike. I'll tell you. That. Yeah, right. If I'm not mistaken, I saw you jamming in the garage with the kids, though, right? You, I mean, yeah, you can't we're play. actually we're we're um, doing something a little more professional right now with a friend of mine who's a good producer. So we're we're doing a whole a whole song that I, I that is literally what I was doing. Right before I called you, um, I was trying to finish the tracking vocals. And how's that coming? It's pretty cool. We we got we got. I mean, my our kids are really talented musicians, and I knew they could play well. But but in doing this project, I didn't realize how really masterful they were, and uh, it's been really fun. Right, now, Tony, I don't I don't want to put you on the spot because you I get this sometimes. Like, hey, Rome, hey, Rome, remember when I met you? When? Yeah, yeah, I remember when. There's no way I remember. But do you remember back? Back in the day at the bowling alley, Guy Starkman had a thing right by his club, and Blink came out, and they played a really small set, and you were there. It was on Ventura Boulevard back in yep. the day. If you sure. don't remember, it's okay to say you don't remember. No, that was our very first uh, fundraiser for Tony Hawk Foundation. Yeah, right? Wasn't that great? What do you remember about that day? Because I, I remember it. I thought it was amazing. Yeah, so Blink played on the bowling alley, and if you remember, also David Spade performed. Yes, and we had a lot of families with little kids, and they were very confused by his his comedy. <laughs> Parents got it though. Yeah, but that, that was. I mean, they played like a three or four song set on the lanes themselves in yeah. the eight one eight. Now you you never left San Diego. I met my wife in San Diego. You know, America's finest city. For those who don't know, explain why it is and why you never left. Uh, well, I I ended up here because my dad was in the Navy. And uh, when he retired, he, he had been stationed here, so we just stayed here. And I, there was enough support for what I was doing through my, through my years that I never needed to leave because skateboarding was kind of centralized here in Southern California. And there were plenty of facilities, and eventually I built my own facility, built my own ramps, and the weather was, was really good for skating year-round, and it was just kind of like I, I ended up here by default, and I never want to leave. So, Tony, what did your parents think? Like, I think most parents want their kids to have an interest and a passion and find a thing, unless, you know, you're, you're not like this, but there are parents that want to determine what their kids should be doing and what's best for them. When you ultimately made that change, before we knew what it was going to do for you or what you would do for it, what did they think about you picking skateboarding is the thing? They were, well, they were supportive of me skating because it finally gave me some focus because I was really... I would, I, would, I would have been diagnosed as hyperactive. Do you remember that diagnosis? Sure. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and so I was just a ball of energy and always wanted to, to do different things, and they were exhausted by it. And so when I found skating, it was like the focus of all my energies. So they were just like, thank God something is keeping him busy. Um, and also I was the youngest of four, and so they had kind of been through all kinds of stuff with my, my older siblings because they grew up in the 70s and, you know, things were wild and, and so it was like, when I came along, it was just kind of like, oh, just keep him busy. It's fine. So um, even when I got hurt, they didn't make me quit. 
Um, so I was thankful for that. Hmm. And then you got hurt much later in your career, which I want to ask you about. But it's interesting to me that they liked it because they felt like you had focus and you were able to lock in, which is really interesting because those who do not know, for the uninitiated, for the uneducated, as an example, what do you think is the biggest misconception about skaters from the outside? Like the thing that people don't know that they need to know. Uh, that, that we're just as devoted and committed and, and just as much, you know, athletic as, as any professional sport. Um, you know, to do this, it takes such dedication and such perseverance. And I think the, the, the big misconception is that people think skaters are lazy, they're slackers, they're stoners, and they're not motivated. And the exact opposite is true. If you want to make it in this business, you've just got to keep pushing yourself. Well, as an example, the 900, which you and I talked about back in the day. I'll get to that in a minute. In fact, I'll get to that right now. Like, the two things that I'm about to mention were both so enormous. What was more dramatic in terms of your career trajectory? Was it when you nailed that 900 for the first time, or was it when your first video game dropped? What was more significant? Well, I think the the video game is what kept me relevant for so long and kept my name out there. So I would have to say the video game, it really it changed my life. It changed my life in terms of opportunity, in terms of uh, financially, and it, you know, it was something that I would never expected such success like that. So for the, the 900 was definitely my biggest moment in competition and probably the highlight of my career in terms of actual skating, but the video game just sort of send it into another stratosphere like tony when you say that it changed your life i'm sure there's a lot of people listening saying bro it changed my life too i think it changed a lot of people's lives what about the sport overall what did the video game do for the sport overall i think it introduced a whole new generation to skating and and what what changed dramatically during that time is that the only people who skated before the game was released, the only people who skated were people who, or the only people who were interested in skating were ones who were doing it. There was no, there was no fan base of people, of non-skaters. And I think the video game kind of created a fan base where it was like, hey, I enjoy this, I respect it, I understand it, but I don't necessarily want to do it. Yeah, Tony, tell me I'm wrong, but it seems like to me you because you got there, you were ahead of your time in that sense, you were to skating what Tiger Woods was to golf, right? People who did it, did it. But until Tiger Woods started doing it, there were a lot of people who would have never thought to pick up a golf club. Is that fair? Uh, maybe, yeah. I mean, it, it, is, it was weird to have my name so synonymous with skating, but I think that was more because I had had a successful career in the 80s. My name was already sort of established within the industry. And then when everything sort of took off, crazy uh in the late 90s and early 2000s my name was still already known and then it became sort of known on a bigger scale um but i, I you know i'm hugely proud if, if i was the catalyst to bring more people in tony what was that like i mean that's not listen again correct me if i'm wrong i don't think this is why you got into it right you love doing it and probably on some level the fact that you could get paid much less have the life you've had, which you've earned completely by doing something that you loved, that you would have done for free is something. But when that game drops and all of a sudden personally, all of a sudden you are so recognizable and it changed so dramatically so quickly. What was that like on a personal level? Um, well, it was weird to suddenly be in the spotlight so much um, because, you know, I, I had I had glimpses of that through my career, but not in the sense of, wow, suddenly. Um, and And probably the most pressure that I felt was having to represent skateboarding 
um, which I was happy to do, but that's a tall order. You know, with great power comes great responsibility, and I really wanted to represent skating in an authentic way and to show that it can be a positive influence on kids. And I think that was probably the, the, the most pressure that I felt through the years was to represent it properly and not just on my, my own behalf. You know what? I, I like that. I'm glad you brought that up because like, I talk to athletes again all the time about well, if you have to make a decision at some point, do you pick up a bat, do you pick up a ball, do you pick up a golf club or a hockey stick? Again, for those who don't know, when you're representing a sport, like what would you tell a parent or like what can a skateboard do for a kid's confidence or creativity, especially if that youngster feels shunned or maybe uh, as an outcast? I think it could be the perfect tool. I, I feel like it, it taught me so much about myself in terms of self-discipline and self-confidence. And a lot of kids feel disenfranchised by mainstream sports or maybe by the, the sort of things they're expected to do. And sometimes when they find skating, actually a lot of the time when they find skating, they find a way to use their, like to have a voice, to, to create their own style yet be part of a community. So it's, it's a sort of individual pursuit that's very community-based, and I feel like it can teach kids so much about what they're capable of because you set forth your own challenges. Tony, you know how this is? Like, if you, I don't care who you are. If you have any success, not everybody's going to be really happy for you. So when you're coming up and you're with everybody else and all of a sudden you break out and you break out in a huge, huge way, what was the response within the skating community? Was everybody in favor of it, and was everybody happy for you? Uh, at first there was backlash just because, uh, suddenly there was this sort of sellout narrative where it's like, oh, you're, you're big time, you're corporate. Um, and I, I endured a lot of that, uh, which is funny because now skaters are, you know, it's very, it's very normal to be sponsored by Nike or Red Bull, um, or or big corporation or Toyota. And so I, I think I was sort of one of the first to break into that realm and uh skaters were you know they they covet skating so much and they were like this doesn't belong here you're you know you're diluting what we do but at some point i think they realized that i was using these huge marketing dollars to promote skating in general and it sort of died down yeah i was gonna say either that or opening doors for lots of other people to have lots of other nice opportunities you know this this notion tony of perseverance as an example how long were you working on and trying 900s before you finally landed one uh from the very first time i ever tried one it was about 10 years 10 years all right so yeah i mean i would go through phases i would go off and on with it uh at one point i got really focused on it around 1996 and broke my rib when I finally tried to land one and then that put it on pause for a while again. All right, so if you're on and off for the better part of a decade and you're grinding, what did it feel like when you finally did nail that? Oh, just a huge relief. It was like, it was almost like the relief was was overpowering of the excitement that I should have felt. Because it was just like, oh, finally, get that over with. It was like, <laughs> let's move on now. Um, but what I didn't realize was how how much it would affect people and, and how that became to be such a signature time in my life. Um, and I'm super proud of it. But, it. but at the time, it was just like, oh, finally, like get it done. 
Do you know what? Like, again, like great athletes. I mean, how many times have we heard that? That when you win the Super Bowl, finally, it's like there's no joy. It's just relief. Like, good. I'm not that guy. They can't say that I never won the big one. It sounds <laughs> like that for you. Like, so what did that do for people? What did it do for you and others who saw it in the sport? Um, well, I think that in a lot of ways, that and also the video game, like that, that inspired kids to start skating because they saw that it was, it was this passion and it was something that you could be creative with, but also they saw this, um, I think they identified with the, the determination that they saw in me. And, and I feel like that is what was the catalyst to bring a lot of new people into skating. Um, I, I've heard, I mean, people have told me that, like I saw that and I went out and bought a skateboard the next day. Um, and I don't think they expected to do 900s, but, but it, it instilled something in them that inspired them to try it. So when was the last time you nailed one? How old were you? Uh, that, uh, about three years ago was my last one. Um, did, so I was 48. Dude, amazing. What did that one feel like? Was there relief or was uh, there some joy in that, that one? That one, actually, that was also a relief, um, but it, it took a lot longer than I anticipated so um, I thought like it would be a fun thing to do, you know, at my age, it was, it was 17 years after the first one. And it was like, oh, I'll go out there. And, you know, I, I, I warmed up for it. Like I, I, I spun and trained for it. And then when I got there, it took about twice as long as I anticipated. And then by the end of it, it was like, I don't want to do this ever again. See, I was going to say, are you going to dust that thing off? Do you have one more in you? I don't really, I, I, I don't make ultimatums, but I, I can honestly say I haven't been feeling it lately. Never say never. So what do you like? How do you approach the craft at this point? Like do you give the people what they want and play the hits or do you feel like you're still evolving as an artist and looking to create new material and come up with new tricks? It's a little bit of both. I've, I've learned to focus my, my trick um, selection and my creativity in a way that's less uh, dangerous, basically. Like I've learned to do more technical tricks and they're really more the kind of things that skaters would appreciate as opposed to the general public. Like the general public is not going to understand the intricacy of a 360 shove a 5 to fakie. It's all just more like these real uh, technical moves, moving your skateboard under your feet. And so I, but I enjoy it because it keeps, it keeps me, um, it, it keeps me evolving and, and, and learning, progressing and learning new stuff. But I'm not out there spinning the crazy big high tricks anymore because my body just can't take it. Does that mean you're not going to jump between two seven-story buildings again like you did for MTV back in the day? Dude, whose idea was that? <laughs> that was my idea, actually. And it, Watch what you wish for. <laughs> oh, my God, dude. How, like, how nervous were you for that? And what was the key to that jump? Uh, the key to that jump was setting up the ramps on the ground first and, and feeling comfortable with the distance and realizing that even if I fall, I'm not going to fall into the gap. Tony, I'd say, Mike, the, the guy, I don't know if you ever, ever talked to this guy, but one of the most fascinating guys I ever talked to my whole life was Evil Knievel. Like, the crazy shit that he used to do. Oh, yeah. It, it, it was, can... I mean, he's, he's a big reason that I ever wanted to do stunts. Tell me. I got to, uh, well, I mean, I saw, you know, I saw all of his jumps when I was a kid. Like, he was a hero. And, you know, just the fact that he tried it was amazing. But um, I did get to do a photo shoot with him in Montana. I flew to Montana. I think it was for Men's Journal. And he towed me on my skateboard with his bike. 
This is absolutely amazing, right? So like, I have a photo of literally sketching on Evil Knievel's motorcycle and wearing his helmet. <laughs> it, was, it, it was amazing. It, it, that was amazing. Before you go, a couple of really quick things. Like we talked about, I, I didn't even know that, so that story's amazing. So put that in this question. We talked about the release of your first video game. We talked about the time you nailed the 900. We just talked about the time you went to Montana and hung out with Evil Knievel. But in terms of career highlights, no, life highlights, where do you rank appearing on The Simpsons? I, that, I, I, honestly, that's probably one of the top. That might be my top pick. Um, I was so honored to be invited to do that, and it's you know The Simpsons is such a is such a uh, gauge of pop culture and what's cool and the idea that they they focused a whole episode around me and Bart was a dream come true. I mean that that's still one of my proudest moments. All right, so it's one thing to be asked, but what's it like, like the process? When you get there and you're doing the table read for the show and you're seeing how this whole thing comes together, what was that like? That was the, that was the most fun part because at the table read, you see all the characters, you see the voices coming out of each person, and you run through the whole thing. When you actually go to read the lines in a, in a uh, uh, studio, it's just you. I mean, I wasn't even when I was doing conversations with Homer or Bart, they weren't in the room. It was just me. And then when you do a pickup, you actually get to see the animation and then you've got to match your voice to the exact mouth movements. That was probably the, the most challenging part, but the table read was the most fun for sure. What a life experience that is. Listen, quickly, we talk about perseverance and grit and desire and determination. This is best exemplified by this. You had a really, really bad crash while doing Wild Boys a number of years back. What was the extent of your injuries, and then how did that experience affect your overall mindset and perspective? Uh, well, basically, I broke my pelvis, fractured my thumb, fractured my skull, and it really, the, the healing part wasn't the hardest because I've been hurt before and I know that, you know, I, I know to lay low and to work into it. The hardest part was regaining my confidence. It took me about a year to be able to do the kind of tricks that I knew I was capable of because I just had, I, suddenly I had these doubts of things that I used to take for granted. I mean, Tony, given who you were, Given your age, given the nature of the injuries, given the level of success that you already had, I think most people would have shut it down and just stopped skating, but obviously you did not. How come? Uh, it's, what can I say? It's my lifeline. You know, it, it's, it's, it's the buzz that I've always chased since I was a kid. Um, it's my way of expressing myself. It's my, I mean, I, even if I couldn't come back in full form, I was still going to skate somehow, some way. And, um, I just couldn't give it up. And, and it also, those, through those years, it taught me how, how truly passionate I am about it because I wasn't doing it to get back just to get paid or anything. I was doing it because I had to. See, I was going to say, let, let's not confuse lifeline with livelihood. You were not doing it for the money. Like I've always said this, whenever somebody says it's not about the money, generally it's about one thing, the money. But that's not what that was, right? It, it had no, nothing it, to do with money. You know, it's what I live and breathe. It's, it's, it's really what keeps me motivated. And... You know, people ask me, like, how long can you do this? I'm going to keep doing it. I may not do it in public, <laughs> you know, if, if my skills are waning, but I'm sure I'll be on my skateboard somehow, some way. 
the other thing is, too, you, you've been so involved, especially with the foundation, in growing the sport, clearly. Let me ask you this. For a long time, the sport was something of a boys' club, but you've been pushing for equality in the sport for a long time. Have some of those earlier barriers come down, and how much growth have you seen in the sport in that regard? Uh, I think it's been great. It's, it's exploded in the last couple of years, too, especially with the inclusion of the Olympics, which are now obviously postponed, but the Olympics will be... Uh, the skateboarding will be in the Olympics next year for the first time. And because of that, because there will be equal disciplines, equal gender, um, skating has suddenly just come of age, finally. And now there are plenty of, of girls out there skating, uh, female pros, you know, and ones that really have the skills to back it up. And um, it's been great to watch. It's been great to be part of, too. You know, I was going to say you are part of this because you've been extremely active with your foundation the last decade and a half. And a lot of the work has been in developing skate parks. How many have you built now? And then what other types of things are you doing with the foundation? Uh, so the foundation has been around for 18 years. Uh, we have helped. We help fund projects in cities. We really are more of a resource center, so we give them the guidance to how to get, how to, how to petition a city, how to raise funds, um, how to design a park. And then we'll give them funding and the resources they need. So we've helped to fund over, uh, I think, 800 skate parks now, maybe mm-hmm. over 900 um, across the U.S. And uh, most of them are open. And um, it's the proudest work I can do. I mean, I love it. I said, let me ask you this, Tony. Like, you and I, we're both now in our fifth decade. So, like, when we came up in our respective ways, our respective games, it was totally different. And now you see, like I had said to my son the other day, you can't, like, the things that I would tell you that are important to me, my core values, they're timeless, but you can't run my playbook if you want to do what I did and have the same kind of success. I guess what I'm getting at is what kind of an impact, for instance, has social media had on the sport overall? Oh, it's really leveled the playing field because in the past, if you wanted to be a successful skater, you had to compete. You probably had to live in Southern California or where one of the hubs of skating was so that you could get the coverage from the magazines or on the video stuff. And with social media, you can live anywhere and you don't have to compete. As long as you are producing content, as long as it's entertaining and creative, you can make, you can make a splash. And so I think it's, I think it's awesome. It's, it's awesome, but that's really interesting what you just said. You don't have to compete. Like, it is what it is. Are you okay with that, or is there something to be said for the competitive component and that you had to compete on the way up? No, I think, uh, well, I, a lot of people just aren't built for competition. They, just, they don't like to be pitted against other people, yet they are highly creative or really, really talented. And so, no, I don't, I don't, think, it's, you know, I don't think it's necessary um, I think it's, it, it is one aspect of skating and one that people thrive in, but also there is this other aspect of just really fun, oddball uh, tricks and entertainment that, that I love as well. Content. I like it. Last thought. So it's been five years since your last video game, but as you know, Tony, there's been some online buzz that there may be a new Tony Hawk game coming out later in the year. I know you'll be coy about this, but can you give us a sense? Is there something in the works? I would love for something to happen. I, you know, when people ask me, it's not, it's not entirely up to me. So I think that's, the, that's sort of the misconception is like, why don't you just buy the rights to this or do this? And it's like, I don't have a video game studio behind me. Um, but uh, I, I'm hoping that something happens. That's all I can say. I like that. I'll take that. I, expe- I I appreciate that. Of the five, which one is your favorite? 
Oh, wow. Number two. How come? Number two set us up to be a franchise. Um, it was everything we hoped the first one could be, and it's got the best soundtrack. It's got some of the best levels. Uh, that's the one that really started the revolution. I like it. And a bonus question. What are you listening to these days? Oh, wow. That is a tricky... <laughs> um, I've been listening to a lot of the older sort of post-punk... Um, Bauhaus, Joy Division, New Order, um, just because that was, you know, that was my youth, and uh, I love sharing it with my kids. Oh, dude, I'm so glad you said that. So the other night, New Order comes on, because you remember, like, as I mentioned, I got my start in San Diego, like in the heyday of 91X. So as we were quarantined, New Order came on. I said to the kids, you know, my kids are like upper middle class, suburban, wannabe, rap gangsters. I'm like, let me tell you something. Listen to this song. Listen to the song. Your mother and I came up on this song, you know, New Order, Bizarre Live, Love Triangle. And it sounded so yep. great. And they were looking at me like I had three, three eyeballs. You know what I'm talking about, though, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But it's fun to, you know, I, I think they, they quietly take that influence. No, they do. They do, and I remind them how much better they have it than the crap that my old man used to make me listen to, which I know he thought <laughs> yeah. was awesome, like I thought it was awesome. I'm just glad to hear, like, Bauhaus, Joy Division, New Order. Let's not forget about The Jam, The Replacements, you know, the oh, good yeah, stuff. The jam. Yeah, it's great. I have a, um, so when I go to my ramp, I have a uh, Pandora playlist that starts with Gang of Four. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah. everything that comes out of it is a banger. Oh, yeah, Gang of Four is awesome. So you tell me, The Jam or The Clash? I always go back and forth with my buddies about that. The Jam or The Clash? Oh, The Clash. The Clash Dude. is my favorite all-time band ever. You're not going to, you won't get a different answer. By the way, I never win that. Everybody I know says The Clash, and I always go, The Jam, The Jam. I'm a Weller guy. Look, The Clash is The Clash, right? I would never say anything bad about them. I, I don't know. I'm just about Weller. Weller and then Paul Westerberg. Well, yeah, I mean, That's Entertainment is one of the best albums by far, mm -hmm. but... um Everything the Clash did, I love, and you, you know it was just lightning in a bottle. Like then they just they just fell apart. I know, right? Buzzcocks, always. I gotta let you go, Tony. I'm gonna keep doing this. Listen, I appreciate <laughs> you it. so much. So good to get caught up, Tony. That was great. Time extremely well spent, and I really do appreciate it. Stay safe, and great to have you on. Yeah, man. Thanks. I would imagine during this time you're getting caught up on your reading. Well, here's a great book, a great new book, one with a story that takes you on an action-packed wilderness adventure deep into the wilds of Alaska. Today's podcast is sponsored by Stonecross, the adrenaline-fueled new book by Mark Cameron. He is the best-selling author of the latest Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan character novels. In Stonecross, an Alaskan resident with nearly 30 years in law enforcement, Mark Cameron is a master of action and gritty detail. And he brings this explosive authenticity to Stonecross as you follow U.S. Marshal Arliss Cutter on a manhunt through the untamed landscape of the Alaskan bush. Big storms, predatory animals, Dark old growth trees and deep frigid waters could prove just as deadly as your target. Stonecross by Mark Cameron is available right now on Amazon.com and everywhere books are sold. Visit MarkCameronBooks.com for more info. Mark, M-A-R-C, CameronBooks.com. 
Huge, huge ups. And big thanks to Tony Hawk for all his time. If I didn't let him go right there, we would still be on the blower talking tunes. So I hope you enjoyed that. And I will do what I always do right here, which is to encourage you to get subscribed. Leave a review and tell your people about the podcast. We are doing really good work around here. So if you can help us increase the exposure, that would be so appreciated. And if you want to do more than just listen and you want to actually be a part of the pod, leave me a voicemail. Here is the number. Put it in your phone. 949-385-0447. 949-385-0447. If it's good enough, or even more importantly, if it's bad enough, it might make it to the next episode. And speaking of the next episode, look for that a week from today. I will have Michael Imperioli on to talk about The Sopranos, his new podcast, and so much more. Until then, here are your voicemails. First new message. Hey, Romy, this is Big Sugar in the 604 Essential Services Cable Guy. Just listening to your uh, podcast with Michael uh, Bisping. Oh, my God, I'm still laughing about. Bang! Knocked him out. Bang! Knocked him out. Bang! Knocked him out. <laughs> message saved. Next message. Jimmy, it's me. It's Connor McGregor. Listen, Jimmy, I got a real fucking dilemma. I need your help. I can't go out to the ball game, Jimmy. I can't take my girl to the show. Can't get no fucking peanuts and crackers yet. I'm in quarantine, so I can't get no back. But I root, root, root against COVID. It's made my whiskey business a fucking mess. Give me a call, Jimmy. I need to make some fucking money. Message deleted. Next message. This is Kennedy in the 573. I got a little song. I'd like to settle down, but they won't let me. The FedEx man must be a rolling stone. Down every winding road, there is a package. For the FedEx man, the highway is his home. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim, this is Scott calling from Duluth, Minnesota. Started listening when the John and Seatown cave came up. A longtime Packer and Brett Barr fan. Love Brett Barr. And that hour that you did on Brett was just absolutely fantastic. Thanks for uh, keeping us entertained through this tough and trying times. And on war, Carol Baskin. And keep doing a great job, Romy. Out. Message saved. Next message. Hi, Jim. My name is Steve Giffney. I'm out in Tucson. 25-year longer listener. I just got out of the hospital for the virus. I didn't know if you had anybody that's been on letting people know what it's like when you're there. And six days later, don't know if you'll see your family or anything anymore. Thanks for all you do. You've got me through a lot of things, especially this, okay? Thank you. Message saved. Next message. Romy. Walker sucking no cow. I and my wife are both nurses. And this time, man, when, when everything's sort of upside down and crazy, brother, I so appreciate you. From the epic podcast to just the content of the show, listening to you for 20 years, brother, it is so nice to have a bit of normalcy. And I just got to say, the Matt Money Smith episode of the podcast was epic. I could listen to you and him talk music, sports, entertainment. The breadth of your guys' knowledge was just crazy. Thank you for being something normal in the middle of all this time, bro. God bless the family, man. I'm out. Message saved. You have no more messages.